Anyone else on the block that day would see a six-foot-something behemoth with a twisted sneer and a shoulder flex that said, if I don't know you, you better take the long way around. Anyone else would see all 270 pounds of Tango, who, rumor has it, murdered two unfortunate souls with his bare hands and turn away the second he started getting up in arms. But one summer in the mid-1960s, Frank Lucas saw something else. Frank Lucas saw opportunity. Tango was a loudmouth up-and-coming drug dealer looking to make a name for himself in one way and one way alone, intimidation. He thought he could get away with anything, walk all over anybody. In 1960s Harlem, toughness and reputation went hand in hand. So Frank Lucas set the whole thing up. He lent the ambitious loudmouth Tango $5,000 of heroin, $5,000 of merchandise he knew he would never see again. All Lucas had to do was wait. And when he saw Tango on 116th Street a few weeks later, he approached him for his money. True to form, Tango started cursing Lucas out, calling him names, calling his mother names. But Lucas didn't mind. As he said, well, as of now, he's dead. No question, a dead man. But I let him talk. A dead man got a right to say what he wants. Now the whole block is there to see if I'm going to chicken out. Lucas didn't chicken out. Tango rushed the smaller man, ready to throw fists. But in broad daylight, with a chunk of the neighborhood watching, Lucas pulled out his gun and shot Tango four times in the head. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on Frank Lucas, an incredibly successful heroin kingpin from Harlem. This week, we will look at how Frank found his way into the New York City underworld and under the wing of a man known as the Harlem Godfather. Next week, we'll uncover the steps Lucas took in setting up one of the most bizarre and successful drug enterprises of all time. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into the strange and dark world of Frank Lucas. Mahali Lucas had a difficult life. She was the daughter of slaves and toiled endlessly as a sharecropper in segregated North Carolina to support her nine children. This only worsened when her husband had a run-in with the law and had to go into hiding. Then her oldest son did the same. He robbed a factory and set it on fire, forcing him to flee to New York City. But on a morning around 1972, 
Mahali rode with that very same son, now in his early 40s, through a small New Jersey suburb. They pulled up in front of a modestly large colonial house. She felt her mouth drop open as her son pulled in the driveway and got out, as if he owned the damn place. She followed him out of the vehicle and asked him in shock if this fine building was his house. The son, now tall and handsome and ornately dressed, put on a devilish smile and responded in the southern drawl he never quite lost, No, Mama, this is your house. It was, in fact, one of many houses her son owned. Frank Lucas had properties in North Carolina, Detroit, Puerto Rico, Los Angeles, and Miami. He claims he kept the company of celebrities like Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali, Wilt Chamberlain, and Diana Ross. He wooed Willie Mays' stepdaughter with an overnight flight to Paris and ultimately married a Puerto Rican homecoming queen. He owned a $125,000 stud bull on his ranch in North Carolina and an 85-foot yacht he paid for in cash. He threw lavish parties and co-owned a nightclub that hosted some of the most talented music acts of the early 70s. Lucas was able to afford all these luxuries because he ran an international heroin operation spanning from Southeast Asia to Harlem, New York. He was unique in that he not only acted as a major supplier, but he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty and be intimately involved with his drug sales on the street. Because even though he had a garage full of fancy cars, on work days he only used one. A $300 beat-up Chevrolet he named Nellie Bell. Nobody looks twice at a ragged vehicle like that. Nobody knows that the boss is watching. It was in Nellie Bell that he would sit on 116th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue and watch as the dealers and addicts emerged. Right around 4 p.m. as the police shift changed, Frank Lucas's product would sell like wildfire. He claimed that the whole of his inventory would be sold out within an hour. This fire sale was due to two things. One, the rampant popularity of heroin at the start of the 70s, and two, Frank Lucas's product was the best product. Most heroin sold on the streets was cut with substances like quinine in order to dilute the drug and stretch out the amount a dealer could sell. At that time, most heroin was just 5 to 6% pure. What Frank Lucas dished out was a Harlem special known as Blue Magic. Blue Magic was the best heroin you could get on the streets, the most recognizable and the most potent. The heroin he imported from Thailand was nearly 100% pure, but he cut it down to 10 to 12% pure, just strong enough to outpace his competitors, just weak enough not to kill his clients. Almost as a point of pride, Lucas brags about watching the addicts slumped over, head buried between their legs. It was free advertisement, according to Lucas. When people were that strung out, it was like a beacon for where to find the best product. Lucas accomplished this monopoly by employing a very simple but very profound tactic, cutting out the middleman. He did this by traveling to a place in Southeast Asia known as the Golden Triangle, named as such for its opium poppy production. With the help of former U.S. military men, a few strategic negotiations, and a creative plan around transport, 
Lucas set up a business venture that made him one of the wealthiest drug dealers of all time. A business venture that was responsible for thousands of deaths. When pushed as to why he led the life he did, Lucas claims the only other way to get the type of money he wanted was to work on Wall Street. Unfortunately, as Lucas said himself, I couldn't have even gotten a job as a janitor on Wall Street. So he persisted, sold heroin, made ungodly money, and bought everything his heart desired. In doing so, he became a sort of mystical legend of Harlem, a man everyone knew of, but no one really knew. Even a 2007 portrayal by Denzel Washington in the movie American Gangster seems to bring up more questions about Frank Lucas than answers. Lucas and other characters adamantly deny many parts of the movie. Unlike Denzel's charismatic portrayal, Lucas claims that he was mostly selfish and that his only real motivation was money. He wanted to be as rich as he could possibly be and would do anything to get there. As Lucas says, I didn't give a good goddamn about nothing. But in the same breath, Lucas will tell you the stories of grandiosity designed to feed his ego and bolster his importance. Lucas does not just win the heart of his wife, Julie. He wins her from under the arms of Wilt Chamberlain. He does not just buy a yacht. He buys a yacht after taking a private tour of Frank Sinatra's 250-foot boat. This type of self-aggrandizement throws a wrench into our understanding of Frank Lucas. It forces us to ask not just who, but why. Why does Frank Lucas lie? What does he gain? Why do his stories pit humility against arrogance? A stubborn resistance to apology against repentance? Where in this in-between is the real Frank Lucas? To answer these questions, we must go back to the beginning to LaGrange, North Carolina, where Frank Lucas was born on September 9th, 1930. As a disclaimer, it's important to remember that the majority of information we have about Frank Lucas's childhood is according to him. Due to his tendency towards exaggeration, the veracity of some of his story can be put under fire. We will do our best to point out when these claims seem particularly ludicrous. Before Frank Lucas became a legendary drug lord, he was just a boy who admired his older cousin Obadiah. In the summer of 1936 in LaGrange, North Carolina, Lucas was just five years old when three white members of the Ku Klux Klan came shouting at the door of his small shack for Obadiah to come outside. The 12-year-old boy looked at his younger cousin and told him to stay inside, no matter what, stay inside. Lucas quickly ducked to the side of the porch so he could watch what unfolded. The three men berated Obadiah for eyeballing a white girl. Lucas was helpless and confused as the men bound the 12-year-old boy's wrists. Then one of the men shoved a double-barreled shotgun in Obadiah's mouth and pulled the trigger. You could fit a melon in the hole they blasted in the back of his head, Lucas said in his autobiography. Frank's father made a ruckus trying to find justice for his nephew, but it was no use. The South was steeped in the dark shadow of the Jim Crow laws, and black men and women were actively barred from having any political sway. 
Lucas's father's efforts only ended in him having a violent spat with the town sheriff that forced the man to go on the run, leaving the Lucas family entirely vulnerable. Frank claims that this series of events is what led him to a life of crime. He says someone once said that hunger makes a thief of any man. My life of crime began at age six. I became a thief so that my family could eat, plain and simple. This is the type of subtle justification that we see when Frank Lucas tells his story. He rarely is an apologist for his actions, but does often position himself as a survivalist, someone who follows his instincts rather than his logic to get by. In the mid-1930s, Lucas began stealing chickens, pigs, and other livestock for his family. Within a few years, he was assaulting and robbing men waiting outside brothels. When he was 13, he ripped off a general store for $400, or almost $6,000 today. Because of the severity of this crime, Lucas panicked and fled to his aunt's house in Wilson, North Carolina, thus beginning a brief nomadic stint for the teen. Lucas claims he made his way to Kentucky around 1943, but first he got in a fight over craps, was arrested, and put on a chain gang, like a scene out of Cool Hand Luke. Then he made a daring escape and was taken in by a woman who gave him food and shelter in return for sexual favors, all at the tender age of 13. Again, Lucas's exaggerations are apparent, and his stories often seemed pulled out of Hollywood dramas. But two things become clear when hearing Lucas tell of his childhood. First, he has a flair for the dramatic. Second, that he believes everything about him was created from trusting his instincts. This belief carried him forward into very dangerous places, but also made him a very rich man. After leaving behind the woman, as Lucas tells it, he started working at a pipe factory near Lexington, Kentucky around 1944, when he was 14. He ended up sleeping with the boss's daughter for several months until a mutual co-worker caught them. Lucas, knowing firsthand that sleeping with a white woman was strictly off-limits, made plans to take off. After over a year on the road, Lucas had one place in mind, a place where the racial struggles he experienced as a child would be minimized. Or, as Lucas said, a place where hundreds of thousands of black folks lived in their own community, and the one place where I thought I might have a chance to make some real money. That place was New York City. In the summer of 1944, at 14 years old, Lucas got off the bus from Lexington at 14th Street and 8th Avenue. At first, Lucas was confused. All he could see was white people. So he approached a police officer, tapped him on the shoulder and said, I'm trying to get to where all the colored people are. The officer then placed him on a bus and sent the dirty, hungry teenager to 114th Street and 8th Avenue. But the Harlem that Frank Lucas entered was far from the racial utopia he envisioned. In 1944, the neighborhood was less than a year removed from the Harlem riots of 1943. These were sparked by a white police officer shooting a black soldier. 
Today, many speculate that the riots were a representation of the mistreatment of black soldiers in World War II. Despite the American rhetoric for freedom and democracy as the country entered the war in 1941, black soldiers and communities continue to suffer from oppression and segregation. Social activist Langston Hughes pointed to the intense poverty seen throughout Harlem. In describing the neighborhood, he said, A dozen names on the bell, rumors all over the house, no place for a kid to bring his friends, only the pool halls open, the candy stores that bootleg liquor. The kids and the grown-ups are not criminal or low by nature. Poverty, however, and frustration have made some of them too desperate to be decent. Some of them don't try anymore. Slum-shocked, I reckon. But to say Harlem was an impoverished, one-sided neighborhood would be woefully incorrect. In fact, Harlem has historically been one of the most polarizing neighborhoods in the entire country. There were areas of wealth in Sugar Hill and fancy apartments that overlooked Central Park. In 1944, Harlem was only a decade removed from the Harlem Renaissance, a cultural eruption of black artists, authors, and intellectuals. While the Renaissance introduced the world to the likes of Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Duke Ellington, and Josephine Baker, it was abruptly bombarded by the struggles of the Great Depression and World War II. Looking at Harlem is like looking at a great historical tragedy. It's a world that always seemed on the cusp of revolutionary outputs of art, culture, and ways of thought. A neighborhood that flirted with the brink of greatness only to be shut down by circumstance and injustice. And in the summer of 1944, though Harlem did not know it yet, a young 14-year-old was wandering the streets of the community in awe. A teenager that would unwittingly contribute to the oppression brought upon Harlem. That teenager was Frank Lucas, and the first thing he did was rob a diner. We'll hear more about the future kingpin's struggle to survive after this. Now back to the story. Frank Lucas claims that in 1944, when he was just 14 years old, he up and moved to Harlem, New York. In doing so, he had dreams, dreams of wealth, dreams of power. But first he had to eat. And when the teenager got off the bus in his new home, the survival instinct kicked in. He found a buffet diner where you filled up a tray with food before the cashier rang you up. For Lucas, this was perfect. He filled up a tray, hopped over the turnstile, and took off down the crowded Harlem streets. When he went a few blocks and saw that no one was following him, he knew he would never go hungry in his new home. The camouflaging bustle of city life compared to his rural southern upbringing suited Lucas quite well. He was able to blend in, sleep on the floor of a coal room, and continue to hit local diners as a way to feed himself. It wasn't long before he began mugging local numbers runners. These were people who operated within an illegal gambling circuit called the numbers game. The numbers game was an illegal type of lottery gambling. People paid, bet on some numbers, and collected if they won a drawing at the end of the betting period. 
The runner's job was to collect money at the shops that hosted the games and take it to the headquarters of the person in charge. Because the runners traveled vulnerably from place to place, Lucas was able to assault them, take their cash, and make his escape on foot in broad daylight. These hit-and-run robberies kept Lucas afloat for an untold amount of time, until he started selling heroin in the late 1940s. This is where the timeline gets particularly confusing, as Lucas seems often to confuse dates, in one breath mentioning that he robbed people for a few months, then claiming he was 17 years old as he got into the heroin game. Again, because he also claimed he got to Harlem when he was 14, we are forced to suspend our disbelief when hearing the story from Lucas's mouth. His introduction to selling heroin was met immediately with success. He went to a bar to see someone by the name of Old Man Pop. He got a half an ounce for $300. When he sold out, he went back and bought a full ounce. When he sold out of that, he went back to the bar for two ounces. To Frank Lucas, it was as easy as that. Go back to the bar, double your money, and so forth. The reasons Lucas might have found the drug dealing game so easy were threefold. First, in the late 1940s, Corsican gangsters established what is now known as the French Connection. During World War II, opium trade routes were blocked, but when the war ended, the opium industry was wide open for the taking. The Corsicans moved fast, establishing a connection with Turkish opium farmers. These farmers were licensed to grow opium poppy for medicinal purposes, but were happy to sell their excess to the underworld. The Corsicans set up refinement factories in Marseille, France, a city chosen strategically as it was a major port in the Mediterranean Sea. Then the Corsican gangsters sold the refined heroin product to the several Italian mafia families in New York City. All this is to say that heroin was starting to pour into New York City in the late 40s and early 50s. Second, the heroin being brought into the city was being terribly regulated. In a 1972 book called The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, PhD student Alfred McCoy established a connection with the United States government and heroin trafficking. He showed that the CIA secretly funded the Corsican gangsters involved with the French Connection and opium dealers in Laos as a way to battle the early stages of the Cold War. Worried about the outbreak of communism globally, the CIA intentionally allowed the import of large quantities of heroin into the United States by anti-communist traffickers. And once it crossed the borders, Law enforcement was not exactly keeping the streets of New York City drug-free. New York City has had a distinct history of corrupt police officers. In 1951, the Helfand investigation indicted 500 officers from Brooklyn for their involvement in illegal gambling operations. This and several other incidents suggest that at times it was difficult to tell the difference between the bad guys and the good guys. Thirdly, Lucas was able to find immediate success as a drug dealer because heroin is a highly, highly addictive substance. In fact, many consider it to be the most addictive drug on the planet. When ingested, heroin activates the opioid receptors in the brain and releases an unusual amount of dopamine, 
causing the user to experience feelings of extreme relaxation and well-being. If Lucas knew about this perfect trifecta that allowed him to find instant success dealing drugs, he probably did not care. He was making money, dating women, buying cars, and living fast. However, by the late 1940s, 17-year-old Lucas needed to confront a world that he never knew before, the world of excess. The upstart drug dealer always enjoyed playing craps and shooting pool, two pastimes he traced back to his days in the South. When Lucas started making thousands of dollars selling heroin, he started playing more. Unfortunately for Lucas, in his early days of dealing, he was particularly disorganized. He shoved the bills he made on the streets in a drawer or a closet and pulled out what he needed, never keeping close tabs on what was going in and what was coming out. For Lucas, this was new territory. He never had money before, so he had no idea how to manage it. Lucas's gambling habit got the best of him. He was buying drinks for entire bars, purchasing new furniture, betting on pool and craps, and living an overall rambunctious life. He even claims, I'd crash my car, leave it right there, and go straight to the car dealer and buy a new one. This philosophy of dealing with problems as they came had gotten Frank this far. But when the pressure mounted and responsibility loomed over him, the pieces came crashing down. And suddenly, almost as quickly as he had gotten rich, Lucas found himself flat broke for the first time since coming to Harlem. Sometime in the late 1940s, he had to leave behind his fancy apartment, lost his cars, lost his clothes, and once more had to scramble to survive. He tried to get more heroin, but was in debt to so many dealers that no one would sell to him. When he finally did get a connection, he was arrested. If we are to believe Lucas's story, he spent nine months in a downtown Manhattan jail called The Tombs. Unfortunately, prison did little to change Lucas. If anything, it made him more desperate and ultimately more dangerous. He got out and went right back into his life of robbing and thieving. He robbed clothing, grocery, and jewelry stores. And after he sold the diamond from the jewelry heist to a gangster named Cool Breeze, he robbed the gangster, too. This is where the audacity of Frank Lucas really begins to shine. Lucas had now spent several years in Harlem, and due to his drug dealing and general debauchery, was not the shadow that he used to be. People knew who he was, knew that he ripped off some dangerous men, knew that he might be crazy. When he went directly into Cool Breeze's hideout and robbed him, he was asserting that he would do anything, go to any length. Frank Lucas wasn't scared of anybody. A gangster like Cool Breeze was sure to retaliate. But because of Lucas's strange and bold heist, Cool Breeze needed to first understand what type of person he was dealing with. See, Lucas had gone straight into the lion's den and pulled the son of a bitch's tail. A man who does something like that, well, he might be a little unstable. If he's going in guns first to a den full of dangerous gangsters, there's no telling what he might do when threatened. As the days passed, Lucas remained on high alert, but safe. He realized that Cool Breeze was not in any hurry to track him down. 
The man was asking questions, gathering information, gaining as much as possible to have an advantage against the crazed boy that robbed him. Lucas was a wanted man, or by his account, a wanted 17-year-old. But that wasn't going to stop him from chasing more and more money. As Lucas said, I wasn't afraid to die. More than that, I just didn't care about dying. I was young, tough, good-looking, and strong. I was prepared to do whatever I had to do to live. If that meant killing anyone who tried to kill me, so be it. It's at this point that we begin to see Lucas harden. Up until now, he had been a boy instinctually chasing survival. Now, with his back in the corner, a stubborn ruthlessness started to emerge. The part of him that could care less about his impact, about the people he stole from, or the ones that wanted him dead. If they stood in the way of more money, for all Lucas cared, they were target dummies that shot back. Thus he continued into his late teens, robbing with guns out and chest forward, challenging anyone to stop him. But no one did stop him, until as Frank describes it, a fateful day changed everything. This time, it all came down to a game of pool. Lucas had continued his stint as a pool player, and like everything else, claimed he was the best at it around. Ice Pick Red kicked in the door of Lump's pool room on 134th Street and surveyed the room. It wasn't that people took notice of him naturally. It was that when he wanted it, he commanded it. Having a reputation as a contract killer who takes out their targets with ice picks will do that to you. Ice Pick strode into the pool hall, shouting that he had $1,000 down for any chump that wanted to play him in a game. Well, nobody wanted any of that business, and the people in the hall started to shuffle their feet and look this way and that. But Frank Lucas was having none of it. Something about Ice Pick rubbed him the wrong way. Something that made him want to put him in his place. Lucas stepped forward, pool cue in hand, and said he had $100 on him to put down. Ice Pick mocked him angrily. $100 wasn't worth his time. It seemed for the moment, the game between Ice Pick Red and Frank Lucas was not to be. That is until a mysterious, well-dressed man entered the pool hall. Everyone stopped to look in dramatic, record-scratching, movie-like fashion. The man crossed the room, all eyes watching him as he approached the confident young teen. Are you sure you can beat him? The man asked Lucas. Lucas assured him he could. Ice Pick started to protest. The contract killer knew the man's reputation. Best if the man stayed out of it. But the man only laid down $1,000 and told Ice Pick to rack him up. Frank Lucas proceeded to beat Ice Pick Red, clearing the table right off the break. The man who paid for his game turned to Lucas and said, let's go. Lucas didn't think twice about it. He saw the effect the man had on people and knew he was not the type of guy you say no to. From then on, Frank Lucas was under the man's protection and he owed the man something intangible. The scene Lucas described in his autobiography again seems straight out of a movie. In all likelihood, Lucas did not meet the man this way. It probably came about in a much milder context 
but the moment was so important to Lucas that he needed to add a mystical element to it. He needed the story to be as big as he felt. This moment certainly was big for Frank Lucas, because the man he met in the bar that evening was a man that would change the course of his life forever. His name was Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson, and he owned Harlem. From the liquor stores to the laundromats, Bumpy had a hand in nearly every business operation, both legal and illegal. He was written about in newspapers, talked about in the streets, and on his good days, came off as the Robin Hood of Harlem. But on his bad days, he was the meanest, hardest man in New York City. Leaving the pool hall that night, Bumpy, known to this day as the Harlem Godfather, had no way of knowing that the boy he left with would surpass his wealth and influence in ways Bumpy could only dream about. Lucas was already vicious and ruthless in pursuing the things he wanted and needed. Bumpy would teach him how to be vicious, ruthless, and organized. We'll hear more about their relationship when we return. Now, back to the story. The specifics about how Frank Lucas met Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson remain a bit of a mystery. Lucas tells about a pool hall incident that, while entertaining and dramatic, feels like it might be a little over the top. However, it does seem likely that sometime around 1948, Frank Lucas began working for the Harlem Kingpin when he was 17 or 18 years old. Johnson was a man of gravity in Harlem. Like Lucas, Johnson came up to New York City due to racial struggles in the South. He entered the underground through Madame St. Clair, a Harlem queen pen. St. Clair ran an illegal numbers game operation in the 1930s, but her real claim to fame was refusing to use the mafia's protection. For this, she called on her primary enforcer, Bumpy Johnson. The two of them were able to hold off the mafia for some time. That is, until Lucky Luciano, often called the founder of modern organized crime in America, stepped in and struck a deal with Johnson. With a man like Luciano at his back, Johnson entrenched himself as a Harlem legend. He ran the numbers game, sold heroin, and extorted local businesses with an operations tax. But for everything he took from the community, Johnson seemed, at least in some part, to want to give back to Harlem. He was famed for giving out turkeys on Thanksgiving and offering cash and gifts to his impoverished neighbors. Though this behavior might seem hypocritical, it falls in stark contrast to what Frank Lucas was about. Lucas was about himself and making as much money as possible. When the two of them got together, their relationship appears to have had a professional distance. Every morning, Lucas would drive over to Bumpy Johnson's house. Every morning, Johnson was awake, dressed and ready to go. Lucas would chauffeur Johnson to one diner or another, while Johnson sat and read his newspaper or talked about plans for the day. Lucas would then drop Johnson off at a meeting and sit several tables away, waiting for some type of trouble. No trouble ever came. Lucas would observe these meetings out of earshot as Johnson not only met with the Italian mob, but actors like Sidney Poitier and a young upstart activist known as Detroit Red. That activist in a few years would change his name to Malcolm X. This became Lucas's life. 
dropping off Johnson, delivering packages he never saw, and watching conversations he never heard. As the years passed, their relationship naturally grew and developed. Lucas became a firm and loyal lieutenant in Johnson's operation, and in return, he learned what it meant to be a true kingpin of the underworld. Unfortunately, this is where the story gets murky. The relationship between Bumpy Johnson and Frank Lucas has been hotly contested. Lucas historically claimed he was Johnson's right-hand man. However, Johnson's widow, Mamie, went on record to say that Lucas was little more than a low-level flunky. And when you look at the records, things start to get a little damning for Lucas. He claims he was a driver for Bumpy for 15 years. A claim that seems ridiculous, given that Bumpy Johnson was in Alcatraz prison from 1953 to 1965. Given that Lucas met Johnson in 1948 and the Harlem Godfather died in 1968, 15 years seems to be stretching the truth. Even though this type of exaggeration seems to be a theme with Frank Lucas, we are going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. We think the truth lies somewhere between the stories of Lucas and Mamie Johnson. Lucas probably was not as closely tied to Johnson as he claimed. However, Mamie Johnson obviously was not intimately familiar with Bumpy Johnson's work environment. Johnson was historically secretive, especially at home. And the way Frank Lucas describes it, his work with Johnson was rather mundane. He drove around, waited in the car or sat at a separate table while Johnson had his meetings. He knew little about what went on and even less about exactly how Johnson's schemes worked. By his description, Lucas sounds more like a personal assistant than a right-hand man. Someone who knew the ins and outs of Johnson's day, but could only guess at the inside operations with careful observation. Eventually, Johnson gave Lucas a numbers spot to manage, meaning Lucas would keep track of who gambled, who won, who lost, and be responsible for delivering the money earned to Johnson at night. He collected money from different businesses in exchange for protection from Johnson and began to live what was for Lucas a comfortable life. Lucas bought a nice apartment, a nice car, performed his work duties during the day, and made his regular trip to the clubs at night. Needless to say, this bored the tears out of Lucas, a man used to risk and spontaneity. He wanted to buy more cars, live fast, sell heroin, and get richer than he could ever dream. However, there was one incident that tested Frank Lucas's will for perhaps the first time in his life. Sometime in the early 1950s, as Lucas tells it, Ice Pick Red, the man he beat in pool as a job application for Bumpy Johnson, killed one of Johnson's associates and raped his wife. When he saw Ice Pick Red standing on a corner leaning on a lamppost, Frank Lucas knew what he had to do. Lucas was careful. Ice Pick was known to be a ruthless killer. When Ice Pick refused to get in Lucas's car, Lucas pulled a gun. There was no time to argue. Bumpy was waiting. Ice Pick Red maintained a cool demeanor in the back of Lucas's car until they got to an abandoned house. There, Bumpy Johnson and his associates stripped Ice Pick naked and tied him up. Lucas watched from the periphery and wondered why he didn't just shoot the man. He would soon get his answer. 
Johnson took out a jar of syrup or honey, uncorked the lid, and spread the substance all over Icepick Red's eyeballs and private parts. Then he took out a second jar, this one full of fire ants. By now, Lucas knew where this was going, but he could not turn away as Bumpy poured the squirming, hungry red ants on Icepick Red's body. The gang left the building to the somber sound of Red's muffled screams. The next day, they returned to the spot where they found Ice Pick Red alive and raving like a lunatic. Johnson dumped more ants on him and left him to die. Lucas could not help himself. He returned to the scene a few days later to find a terribly mangled corpse. He walked away with tears in his eyes. This incident taught Lucas three very important lessons. One, that the type of power Bumpy Johnson had needed to be enforced with a greater severity than the slight committed against him. Two, that as a kingpin of any gang, the leader needed to make sure everyone knew and saw the punishment. Lucas says, after Icepick's body was discovered, the streets were buzzing for weeks. People knew what Bumpy was capable of and nothing like what happened to Little Willie would happen again. And number three, if push came to shove, Johnson would not hesitate enacting his wrath on Lucas if he felt it necessary. From that point on, Frank Lucas knew he would never cross his boss's path, even when, a few years later, he thought he had a brilliant idea. Lucas's timeline through the 1950s gets a little murky. We assume he continued running the numbers spot for Johnson and sold drugs on the side, even when the boss went to prison in 1953 for conspiracy to sell heroin. By all accounts, Johnson continued to run his operations from behind bars. He was wealthy and comfortable. Life was consistent for the most part, but Lucas did not particularly like consistent. Several years later, what must have been after 1965, as Bumpy Johnson was out of prison by this point, Frank Lucas was watching the news. More specifically, he was watching a segment on the Vietnam War about how U.S. soldiers were getting hooked on heroin. Vietnam is in proximity to the Golden Triangle, an area where the borders of Laos, Thailand, and Burma meet that is well known for its opium poppy production. Lucas watched with a mundane and curious eye until the newscaster said two key words. Cheaper and stronger. At that phrase, Lucas sat at full attention. The United States troops were getting hooked on heroin they could not find stateside. Because of its potency, they were instantly addicted. The money-making bell in Lucas's head went off. Unfortunately, when Lucas approached Bumpy Johnson with a plan, Johnson listened with his dignified patience. Then he said, no, Frank, we're not going to do that. Lucas was definitely disappointed, but he was also a loyal follower. He stuck by Johnson's side and filed away the scheme for a later date. And then, according to Lucas, something happened on the evening of July 7, 1968, that changed everything. Frank Lucas and Bumpy Johnson entered Wells Restaurant in Harlem they ordered their respective meals 
and when the waitress put them down on the table, the Harlem Godfather started to convulse. Lucas immediately jumped to his aid, but the man collapsed to the ground and stopped moving entirely. Bumpy Johnson was dead from a heart attack. Again, Mamie Johnson disagreed with Frank Lucas's account. She vehemently denied that Lucas was anywhere near Johnson when he died. Unfortunately, Mamie was also not with her husband at the moment he passed, so we have no way of knowing for sure. The important thing is that on the evening that the Harlem Godfather died, the Harlem underworld was changed forever. Bumpy Johnson's riches were Lucas's for the taking, but Lucas didn't want what Johnson had. After a night of drinking, a collection of assets, and a week-long trip to Puerto Rico, Lucas knew what he wanted to do. There was a place that over the last few years had never left Frank Lucas's mind. A place that he felt in his heart was the key to taking the next step. In the late 1960s, he was ready to take a trip. Frank Lucas was going to the source. Frank Lucas was headed to the opium poppy fields of Southeast Asia. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we follow Lucas to Southeast Asia and learn how he set up a wildly innovative international drug ring. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Drew Cole and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.